0: I'm James Homan, a columnist for The Washington Post, and this is the inaugural edition of our new opinion podcast, Please Go On. Every Friday, I'll interview someone who's written an important op-ed for our paper. Sometimes our guests will be folks you've never heard of, like a prisoner in Florida sentenced to life for a crime he committed as a teenager. Other episodes will feature household names, like our first guest, Vice President Kamala Harris.
1: James, you're now in the conference. We're just going to wait on the vice president. Just give me one moment.
0: Vice President Harris has a lot on her plate. Last week, President Biden announced that she will lead the administration's efforts on voting rights. This week, she's been in Central America as part of an effort to address the root causes of the border crisis. Ultimately, administration officials recognize that the American people will judge their success or failure based on their ability to, as Biden's mantra has been for a year now, build back better from the pandemic. It gets lost in the news cycle, but the White House's overarching fears the past five months have been around getting control of COVID with shots in arms and getting the economy back on track. In that vein, Vice President Harris wrote an op-ed for The Post in February on the exodus of women from the workforce during the pandemic. She promised that getting them back to work will be a priority for the Biden-Harris administration. We talked last week about how it's going. Here is our conversation. Please hold, and I will transfer you in um, to the vice president. Hi, it's Kamala Harris. Hi, Madam Vice President. Thank you so much for being the first guest for the first edition of the Washington Post's new podcast. I know you've achieved many more historically significant firsts this year, but we're grateful to have you join us for something, to talk about something that's that's so important. Labor Department data that was released right as you took office showed that about 2.5 million women lost their jobs, or dropped out of the workforce during the pandemic, compared to 1.8 million men. You wrote in your op-ed for The Post that women leaving the workforce in these numbers is a national emergency and deserves a national solution. And you explain that this feels personal because you were raised by a single working mom who had to find someone to look after you. So was I. Could you talk about how your own personal experience shapes your approach to this national problem?
1: Absolutely. Uh, You know, and let me just say that your and my experiences, um, there are a lot of us who have those experiences in one way or another, including Joe Biden, who was a single parent, right, raising his sons. And, uh, you know, growing up, my mother, she had two goals in her life to raise her two daughters and end breast cancer. She was a, a cancer researcher and she worked long hours Um, She, you know, would go stay at the lab late and on weekends. And when she was working late, my sister and I would walk two houses down to Miss Regina Shelton's, who was like a second mother to us. You know, we had that kind of community and that kind of and really a benefit of having that kind of love and support to our whole family. Um, but, you know, at its essence, it was about my mother being able to work long hours knowing her children were well cared for. And and my mother would actually often say that the the advances she made in scientific research are in full credit to Miss Shelton, because she could not have done that work were it not for Miss Shelton. And, you know, when I look at, where we started this you know this year when we came in when the president and I looked at the numbers and all of these parents you know women and men who were at the mercy of, uh, of of a system that really was not giving them the support they need to be able to work they had and and for those people who could not work from home because their job was not such that they could you know get on a zoom all day. Um, it became a, an incredible burden. And so the work that we did, especially in those early days, was about really understanding that this is a matter of survival for working parents. And there was a real urgency, if not an exigency, uh, about the, the pandemic as it relates to the need for parents to have support to raise their children.
0: Yeah, you, you wrote in your op ed. I thought you put it really well, the pandemic has created a perfect storm for women workers, but it's different than a hurricane that's come and gone. It's still raging. What did you mean by that?
1: We're in June and we are still looking at as many as 10 million fewer jobs in the economy than at the eve of the pandemic. And that's why I say it's not completely over, but it's certainly not raging as it was at the height of the pandemic, but we've still got some work to do including, if you want to just extend the metaphor, what you need to do in terms of cleanup after a hurricane, right?
0: Yeah. A a lot of people on the right say that there are now labor shortages because of generous government benefits. Twenty-four Republican-led states now are planning to drop that extra $300 in weekly unemployment payments that were included in the American Rescue Plan. You cast the deciding vote for, they say, people are, in some cases, making more by staying home than getting a job. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce calling for an early end to that benefit. Do you think there's any validity to those concerns or are they off base?
1: Well, let me just tell you, I I firmly believe based on my life's experience and my career, Americans like to work and they want to work. And it is misguided to assume that when people aren't working, it's because they don't have a work ethic or value the importance of hard work and the dignity of work. When you look at the numbers, you know, we still, again, 10 million fewer jobs in the economy than on the eve of the pandemic. And so we are still looking at, you know, while the economy is, is changing rapidly and it's coming back strong, there's still the issue of whether people can work if, for example, they don't have child care. Those issues are still present. I don't have the numbers right now, but we, still, we know that there were a number of child care agencies and providers who, who left the space, who were not doing that work, and it's been slow to recover in terms of available, accessible, and affordable child care.
0: Yeah, and, and I, I know anecdotally so many people who have those child care burdens, and they unfortunately have fallen disproportionately on women. Uh, one of the smartest people I know has had to put off working the last year so she could focus on raising her three kids while her husband worked because they didn't have school and they didn't have childcare. How much of the, the this emergency do you think will abate when kids are fully back in classrooms? Do you have any regrets that it's taken so long for the schools to reopen amid the pandemic?
1: I'll talk about that, but let's talk about the childcare piece a little bit more because a lot of the work that we did from the beginning was not only about the availability of childcare or the scarcity of childcare, but also the affordability of childcare. And I will tell you that the way that I have, I think about a lot of what happened during the pandemic is that the pandemic was really an accelerator and it put a magnifier on the fissures and the failures that existed before the pandemic. On the issue of childcare, a longstanding issue has been affordability of high-quality childcare, And it just got worse during the pandemic in terms of the availability coupled with the affordability. But, you know, for example, I visited a a series of small businesses all over the country during the pandemic. There's this woman, Danielle, who owns a business in Virginia. It's called Fiberspace. It's a great little store. And she's a big community leader. And she was explaining to me her child care costs $1,500 a month. So when people want to talk about if people get if if people are collecting unemployment, is this a reason they're not going back to work? Well, we should also look at what are what are their expenses and is their income keeping up with the cost of living? Right. To have this conversation in a way that is encompassing of all of reality. uh, We need to include that part of the analysis, which is what is the cost of living? and is the income from whatever source meeting the cost of living for the daily responsibilities of parents
0: yeah yeah no and and one of the things that i don't think has gotten enough attention in the rescue plan that's so consequential and exactly what you're talking about is the 120 billion dollars for this new child tax credit program the the numbers are remarkable analysts say 90% of the country's children's parents will benefit. Millions of kids will be lifted from poverty. I know you sponsored or co-sponsored a bill as a senator that would have created a similar program. Several lawmakers on the Hill have credited you with playing a key behind-the-scenes role in making sure that this happened, despite concerns in some quarters about cost. This is really potentially a game-changer for a lot of parents at affordability and what you're talking about. Do you think these benefits will be made permanent? Do you see any chance that Republicans might come along and, and work with you to, to make that happen?
1: Well, to your point, James, I think that what we did with the child tax credit is probably one of the most meaningful aspects of what we have done thus far in terms of the intergenerational Mm. impact. We will have lifted half of America's children out of poverty. Just think about that. Half of America's children will be lifted out of poverty. And I'll tell you that I also know that on its merits... There's bipartisan support. I mean, Senator Romney, for example, has been right. an advocate of the, of the child tax credit. And so, you know, and one of the benefits of, of the way we did it and the way we would do it in the American Families Plan, for example, is that we would extend it through 2025 and we would make permanent the, the fully refundable piece. But one of the technical aspects of what we did that is equally meaningful is you know, normally tax credit at the end of the year, you, you know, at the end of the tax year, you get the tax credit, right? One lump sum. But that doesn't, meet, that doesn't meet the needs of families in reality. And so the way that we designed it is that it would be every month as opposed to at the end of the year. And so that is, I think, a very important and probably underappreciated uh, components of, of the way that we designed it
0: even now, even with these benefits, quality childcare remains so expensive and inaccessible for too many parents. How worried are you looking forward as the economy bounces back that working moms in particular could be disadvantaged by new opportunities to work from home after the pandemic that, you know, all this flexibility can end up being sort of a, a career curse? Hmm, I,
1: I think I, I, I disagree with the premise. I I think we really ought to think about it in the context of families I mean there's no question that women have taken on just as a general matter a disproportionate level of responsibility um, in terms of caregiving for the children also you know we talk about sandwich generation um, a lot of folks men and women who are raising young children but also taking care of their elderly parents Um, but I think that when we think about the issues going forward, we've got to realize that, you know, women want to go back to work as much as men do. (laughs) You know, you know, just any parent who has tried to do homework with a fifth grader (laughs) (laughs) understands how difficult it is, um, (laughs) much less our older kids. But I think that what we do need to appreciate again is that this moment, this, this, the tragedy of this pandemic um, did highlight some longstanding structural issues that we need to address. And it relates to affordable, accessible, high-quality child care. It relates to paid family leave. So if you need to take your kid to the doctor or your parent to the doctor, right? It relates to um, paid sick leave. So you don't go to work sick because the choice between going to work sick or paying rent and feeding your children is not a choice at all. So I think that's how we should look at this moment in terms of what are the lessons learned about how families operate and what do they really need um, to not only survive, but to just be functional and, and hopefully thrive.
0: Yeah, yeah. You you made such a good point at the top. You mentioned that President Biden was also a a single father who had to uh, raise young kids. And I'm interested in your work and relationship with him. He's continued to expand your portfolio with lots of challenging tasks from the Northern Triangle to most recently voting rights. Uh, He has said going back to last year that just as when he was Barack Obama's partner, you'll always be the last person in the room when he makes big decisions and that, you know, you have his ear four or five months in what's the value of working with someone who's been there uh who's been where you've been as vice president
1: um we have such a great working relationship and i think there is a part of that that comes from the fact that he's he's been where i am so i think that's a great point um but i'll tell you you know not only first and last but Throughout the meeting, I'm in the room. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things that Joe Biden said to me at the very beginning when he asked me to, to be on the ticket with him is, you know, that we are going to have an honest relationship that we come from. You know, we have so many things in common in terms of the values we have, but we also have different life experiences. And he made a conscious decision and, and asked of me that I would always give him feedback based on my lived experiences, so that that would be a part of, of any perspective on what we are doing. And, um, and my life experiences include, you know, a number of things based on my career, based on personal experiences. And,
0: um, and do, do, you feel like that's, do you feel like that's shaped public policy in the last couple months where you, you do have all these unique perspectives and experiences, that that's helped make better policy?
1: Well, let me tell you one thing that uh, has become, I think, evident to a lot of people. Joe Biden and I are both policy wonks. <laughs> and We like getting into the details. We like, you know, I mean, sometimes a meeting is slated for, I don't know, half an hour, and it might even go for an hour and 15 minutes because we really, you know, we get into it. We, we get into it and we have a very smart team around us people who work really hard and, um, and we have a lot to get done. Right. And the American right. people I think deserve to to believe and to know that their president and, and this administration are taking the job seriously and aim to fix the problems that, you know, face families and working people.
0: Totally. Totally. The last question I have is you moved into the Naval Observatory in April. Uh, president Biden liked to joke when he had your job, that Dan Quayle was his favorite former vice president because he installed the pool. I know you love to cook and there's a wonderful kitchen there. Obviously you've certainly been busy. There's a lot on your plate. Thanks
1: to Dick Cheney. Is that right? The Kitchen is thanks to Dick Cheney, by the way. (laughs) What's,
0: what, what's just, what's, you know, all five months in what's been the biggest change in your own life since you've become vice president?
1: I mean, everything and nothing. Right. Um, I love my family. I try to spend as much time with them as possible you know, but a lot of it is on Zoom, you know, long days and weekends of, of work around the, the issues that need to be addressed. Uh, a great team. And, um, and I feel a sense, I, I do feel that we are having an impact and, um, and that matters and that matters.
0: Madam Vice President, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this conversation.
1: Thank you. It's great to be with you. And thank you. And good luck with the podcast. Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye.
0: The latest unemployment report shows the U.S. economy added 559,000 jobs in May staving off fears of a slowdown, but falling short of the blockbuster recovery that had been expected to accompany growing vaccinations. Even though the unemployment rate has dropped to 5.8%, our economy still has 7.5 million fewer jobs than when the pandemic took hold. Roughly 15 million Americans are currently receiving unemployment benefits from the federal government. Since my interview with the vice president, the White House has subtly shifted its posture on the $300 weekly benefit that I asked her about. President Biden now says it makes sense for that money to run out in September. And White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says Republican governors have every right to curb the benefits earlier. There are 1.8 million fewer women in the labor force today than when COVID hit. The last time labor force participation was this low was 1977. In May, 56% of all new jobs went to women. That's good news. But experts note. At the current rate, it will take another year for women to get back to where they were when COVID upended our world. Please Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, with editing from Fred Hyatt, Allison Michaels, Ruth Marcus, and Michael Duffy. Our theme music is composed by Ted Muldoon, and our logo art is by Chris Rukan. You can listen and follow us on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Because we're new, it's especially helpful if you can give us a good rating and positive review. If you want to read Vice President Harris's op-ed on women in the workforce, you can find it in our show notes. Thanks so much for listening. I'm James Homan, and I'll be back next Friday with the second edition of Please Go On, because there's always more to say.